Welcome to Willoughby Hills. I'm Heath Rosella. Glad you're here. We made it to July. How about that? Luke Russert is my guest today. Luke Russert's an author. He's got a great new book out. It's called Look For Me There, Grieving My Father, Finding Myself. He's a former journalist with NBC News. And uh, I mean, we talked about it during the title, Grieving His Father. His father, of course, was the legendary newsman Tim Russert, longtime host of Meet the Press. And uh, his dad died very unexpectedly, very young too, back in 2008. And so Luke and I, we have a, a pretty heavy talk today about his father's death and about the aftermath of that. So he gets into this all in the book, but I'll give you kind of the quick version here so you have some context for this this conversation. Tim Russert dies in June of 2008. Luke delivers the eulogy at the funeral. It's attended by dignitaries and politicians of all stripes. It's a big Washington event. And afterwards, he gets approached by pretty much every news network with offers to come work in the news business. So he decides to accept an offer with NBC News, covers the election in 2008 for them from a youth perspective. He's, he's their youth correspondent or something like that. And then as that contract is nearing its end, and he figures, you know, okay, that was a fun year or whatever it was. We'll see where it goes from there. He started working on Capitol Hill and kind of instantly took to it. Ended up being both a, a behind-the-scenes producer and an on-air talent on Capitol Hill reporting on all the news of the day. He did that for eight years until he has a conversation with Speaker Boehner that basically says, are you sure this is what you want to do? And we'll, we'll get into that more specifically during this conversation. But uh, Speaker Boehner kind of calls him out. Luke says, gee, I don't know if this is what I want to do. I should go find myself. And he starts what he thinks is a month's long journey to uh, to travel, to see the world, to understand more about himself. It ends up lasting for three years. He travels to every continent except Antarctica. He journals during that time. He visits sacred sites of all different religions, tries to understand his place in the world and uh, his role, his purpose, all of it. So it's an interesting journey. It's one that starts with the best of intentions and which kind of ends with maybe a bit of malaise or, I don't know, he, he gets bored with the travel and starts doing it more for social media than for his own internal reasons and then kind of has to come to terms with that. And at the end of it all, he sits down and writes this book. It's a book about grief. It's a book about his dad, his relationship with his dad. It's also a book about his relationship with his mother, Maureen Orth, who is a, a famous correspondent, a wrote for Vanity Fair and, and lots of different uh, magazines. And it's about he and his mother kind of establishing a bond after the death of his father and about him finding his way in the world. It's really the type of conversation that I imagined when I rebranded this podcast to Willoughby Hills. I wanted a way for people to talk about finding themselves talk about figuring out what they're supposed to be doing with their life. Luke does that very open and honestly in the book, and he does that openly and honestly today. And I love that this podcast is out when it is because I feel like a lot of what Luke struggles with beyond just finding his own identity 
is grappling with America's identity as well. And it's something that I think we've all been thinking about over the last several years. I mean, depending on on your politics and things, certainly going back to some recent elections, I think that has shaken a lot of people up. But I think the pandemic, too, it's, it's caused us to really focus on what matters, on family, on work, on all of it. Like, what do we want our relationship to this world to be? For so many people, COVID took that away instantly. And now I think those of us that that survived it and are still here, we're asking that question of like, what kind of country do we want to be? What does actual equality look like? What are we fighting for? And are we making progress on that? It's been a great time of introspection. And this being Independence Day week, it just feels like the perfect time to have this conversation. So anyways, I'm, I'm so thankful that Luke was on the show and was so open with me and honest with me. I hope it's a conversation that you can learn from and grow from. And I want you to check out the book, Look For Me There, Grieving My Father, Finding Myself. All right, here it is, my conversation with Luke Russert. Hey, Luke, how are you? Hey, how are you? Good, I'm good. Thank you for making time for this. I appreciate it. No problem. Happy to do it. So I guess I want to start with the journey that you're on right now uh, since the book has come out. I mean, you've you've lived kind of an intense life. Um, the book is a very intense book. Uh, in both cases, though, it's very personal and you kind of control that narrative. And now you're out, you know, doing media appearances, doing book signings, and you've presented this side of yourself to the world and kind of not known, I guess, what the reception was going to be or or how people would uh, would want to talk to you about it. I'm just curious sort of what that experience has been like. It's been really gratifying. When you put a book out into the world, it's a lot of different emotions. It's terrifying. It's exciting. Uh, it's anxiety-ridden. Part of it is because in television, there are graphics, there's video, there's a uh, kind of a performance, if you will, sure. when you're out there on, on, on camera. Whereas the written word is very intimate. It's very naked. Um, you can bleed out on the page. You have to show all of yourself on the page. There's really nowhere to hide. Right. Whereas on television, you can hide sometimes. And for me, uh, putting that out there in that space was, especially for very personal stuff, was something that was cathartic, but you also are fearful of, oh gosh, I hope this lands the right way. Right. Or I hope people are trying to understand what I'm what I'm trying to say. And I've been very uh just very taken aback by how a lot of people have responded not only to the messages of grief, but also to self-actualization and taking a pause and kind of looking inward and seeing, all right, what matters to me in life in this given moment. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of that is with grief. I mean, one of the things that's been incredible is I've had folks in their 70s or 80s that have reached out and been like, I lost a parent 40, 50 years ago. And this book helped me understand some of my feelings around that event. Or somebody would say, you know, yeah, I can relate. I was in a job that everyone thought I should be doing, uh, that I was either honoring my parent or my spouse or my family, but I wasn't really feeling fulfilled and I decided to leave it and I'm all better off for it. Some people still might think I'm out there and crazy. Yeah, It speaks to like, what I think I wrote in the book, which I, I didn't necessarily know it at the time, but this, the, these are universal themes of wanderlust, uh, grief, self-discovery. These are things that are relatable to people, and it's been really heartwarming to see that take place. 
Yeah. I mean, just on kind of my own reaction to reading it, um, we do family Zoom calls. I come from a big family and we do Zoom calls like once a week. And uh, a few weeks ago, it was the ninth anniversary of losing one of my uncles who was, uh, he, similar to your dad, died in his 50s uh, from an undiagnosed heart condition, just dropped dead one day and we didn't expect it. And I had lived with that for nine years and hadn't really processed it. And I was very close to him. And sort of in hearing everyone else in the family's stories, all of a sudden I was nine years ago. Like I was just, I was there in that moment and I'm like, oh my God, I haven't processed this (laughs) in the way that... I probably should have. And I don't know sort of what that looks like. Or I guess I'm curious just sort of what you've learned about grief, either through the process of of living through it or writing about it, or as you say, sort of people sharing their grief stories with you. Yeah. It's an, you know, thank you for sharing that yourself. You think about all that time, you're coming up on 15 years for me losing my father, yeah. nine years, you mentioned your uncle. A lot of those years, they sometimes run together and often- what I find, at least was in my case, is that it's very easy to throw yourself into something to not have to process grief, whether it's work. Some people do that. Some people just kind of disappear from the world. What I mean is they kind of go in their own cocoon and shut off and uh, do things that don't remind them of their lost loved one. And I think I've tried all those things. But what I ultimately came to realize was that grief... uh, you're never going to outrun it. It'll yeah. it'll come to you. It'll get you at some point. And the cliche thing to say, but it's something that I totally agree with, is you may never ever be able to move on, but I think you can move forward. And what I mean by that is you move forward and you, you reach a place where you have to think and you go, okay, this pain and anguish that I feel, is that something that my departed loved one would want me to hold on to forever because of them? Yeah. And the answer is most always no. Right, right. Yeah, they don't want to haunt you. They don't want you to uh, think about them when their name comes up in a way of, oh, gosh, this is going to be painful for me. Yeah. And I think that's something that it took me in years to realize is that when I see video of dad now or I see uh, or I hear audio clips of my father now, I may get choked up at times, but that's happiness. That's not uh, that's not sorrow. It's it's just being appreciative from the time that I had with him and, and what I was able to learn from him. Uh, but it's not easy to get to that place. I think it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of becoming more comfortable in uncertainty. Yeah. And I also think grief is taboo in our society still, especially amongst men. Yeah. You know, there is this idea of vulnerability as weakness. Right. And that's uh, that's too bad. I think we, we we need to try to move away from that the best we can. We're doing better as a society, but there's there's still a way to go. Yeah, and I mean, I think there is too that feeling of like you don't know what you need in that moment either. Like someone says, yeah. "Hey, how you doing? Are you okay?" Or you know, six weeks later, they're like, "You're you're good with that," and like on the surface, you are right. Like you can kind of you can get through your day and you can eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner and whatever, but like it's hard to articulate kind of what you're feeling day to day or, or come up with even the language or, or just the request of like, here's the help I need, or here's, here's what I'm trying to seek. I think it's a very good point. I think one thing that I did, um, mainly because of how I was raised was I never wanted to be a burden on people. I hated being a burden for somebody. So don't worry about me. I'm okay. You know, you have enough going on in your life. 
it's hard because it's sometimes if you are friends or you're related to someone who's gone through serious loss, you don't know what to do because part of you wants to push and pry and yeah. say, no, you're, I know you're not okay. Let me get it in underneath the hood. Another part of you is like, no, nah, I got to respect them and I got to respect the signs they're, they're throwing out there. So it's a process. It's a journey. Uh, I think for me, one of the things that I think back about is when my father passed away, a lot of the male figures in my life, there was a lot of this, you know, stay tough, hold, you know, be there for mom, be there for your family. Yeah. And I did that and I was happy that I did that, but you can't stay tough forever. And at some point that weight is not something that you can plow through. It's not something that you can white knuckle all the time. Yeah. Um, you had, and you have to sit with it. And you also have to realize that grief manifests itself in so many different things that you may not even notice, you know, primarily whether it's anxiety or whether it's, you know, just just general sort of apathy at times. You can seep through. And yeah. some, some, some moments you might think that that's related to a job or to a relationship. And it's like, no, it's, it's that of grief. It's still there. And <laughs> you got to... You got to be aware of it. You got to notice it. Yeah. I mean, part of what you describe in the book, too, is this moment of like getting the news that your father had passed and then yeah. almost immediately getting calls from NBC Brass that like, OK, we've got to control this narrative. And, and yeah. it becomes this almost state funeral. I mean, like President Bush and, and Laura Bush come to the right. funeral service. Like, it right. just, did that surprise you at all? Sort of the level of outpouring of, of kind of love and affection for your father and just the way that uh, the, the place that I think people still hold, I'm, I'm sure you're hearing it, you know, at book signings mm-hmm. and stuff that like, he's still 15 years later, a really respected yeah. person and, yeah. and really missed. Like how did, how did that play into how you process your own grief, seeing everyone else dealing with it so publicly? When he passed away, my mom and I thought it would be, a story in Washington and Buffalo and get a little bit of a mention around the country. But yeah. when there were thousands of people who had flown in driven in from all, it felt like all 50 states yeah, <laughs> this, right. this wake, I think that let us, uh, let us in on something that he was very much beloved and had spent a lot of Sunday mornings in people's kitchens or living rooms or, or whatever you want to call it. And I think that did a few things. I think for me, it, made me feel like I had this duty to rise to an occasion that my own strength could be infectious and help people through. One of the things I did at his wake, originally I said, you know, you only have to shake a few hands and then go off and do what you want. And I ended up staying there for like nine hours. Wow. I shook like everyone's hand. And part of me, I I saw that I was making people feel a little bit more comfortable. People were feeling okay. And I gravitated towards that. But I think, when you think about grief in the in the public space, and you can get that in a big family too, is that people kind of try to play a role. Right. And you know, here's the caretaker, here's the caregiver, here's uh, you know, here's the person running the logistics of things and everything like that. And I, I seem to have found that, but it was um, it was something that, especially in the moment, it it sort of felt this this notion. I at least did this sense of duty. Yeah. Like you have to do this. Right. And people often say, like, if you go back to 22 year old Luke, like, what would you say? I'd be like, there's a lot of things you should do. You don't <laughs> yeah. necessarily have to do them all. Right. Uh, and you got to be more mindful of that. 
you, you said in the introduction, which I thought was spot on, sort of living an intense life. I think there's a lot of moments of intensity that people feel the is normal. Yeah. And one of the things that I really learned in my own journey uh, by getting away from the news business and getting away from that hamster wheel is that 110 mile per hour intensity is not normal. Yeah. And sadly, you know, to to bring it to a larger to a larger issue, is that it seems to be something we do in America a lot, which right. is try to find that 110 mile an hour. Let's turn it up to 11. Right. Right. And a lot of other countries don't do that. Right. It's like, you know, you woke up today, you ate a good lunch, you talked with friends, you got a good night of sleep, you had a good day. Right. You know? And you looked over your local shop for a few hours. Like, it's okay. And uh, that was refreshing to, to, to see around the world. And it certainly changed me for the better. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I want to get to your world travel, certainly, but I want to sure. kind of back up for a minute to just this transition to, to working in the news business and kind of yeah. that coming right out of, of your father's service and then being eight years um, first on the election beat in 2008 and then going into to Congress from there and, and being a congressional correspondent for NBC. Like, it was this very intense time, and as you say, 110 miles an hour, but sort of the impetus for this world travel was a, a conversation with Speaker Boehner. He called you into his office, and yeah. the quote that I wrote down here was, there's always some big story, some next bill, blah, blah, blah. You don't want to become a creature. And then he goes on to say, this is always going to be here. Congress, politics, Democrats, Republicans, etc. You'll want to see more than just here. In some ways, I feel like he was kind of calling into question the last eight years of your life at that point of, of that work you were doing as a reporter. But also, I felt like uh, there was some questioning, perhaps, of of the work your dad had devoted himself to and certainly to to Speaker Boehner's own life of sort of politics and sort of understanding that it was it was this game. Control's going to shift. Bills are going to shift, you know, but like there's no winner in the end. There's no end to it. There's no you know, there's no buzzer in the fourth quarter. It just, you wrote about your reaction at the time in the book, but like looking back on that conversation, like what do you think about it now? And what was he trying to tell you? I think the way you characterized it, it's interesting, this idea of that it is never ending. And I think what Boehner was pointing to is that time is a flat circle when it comes to politics. Yeah. And when it comes to Capitol Hill, there's a lot of truth to that is that there is, there's always a bill. There's always an election. There's always the sort of next thing. And the real business of governing is usually settled in with a few months in yeah. between all of those, and then right. it's back out into the into the next election. But what I think he was really pointing at is it's fine to do this if you want, yeah. but make sure it's really what you want to do, and you would be well served to see something else. Part of the advice he gives me is that he'd seen many people who'd stayed in the Washington bubble or Capitol Hill for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Right. And a lot of them sometimes could wake up one morning and go, what was I doing all that time? Yeah. And I think Boehner was of the mindset, okay, you have this incredible position, you have this gift, but make sure you're in it for the right reasons because there is a tendency uh, that people can sort of just fall into the rhythm and stop questioning things. Talented people can do that and lead on like nothing's off. That, right. Like they're still engaged and interested and everything's perfect. And I think that was sort of something he was astutely aware of, especially from his position. I mean, being second in line to the presidency and uh, toiled and snared for everything he had politically. 
I think the words meant more coming from somebody who had a working class upbringing, like my father came from a large Catholic family in the Rust Belt and had a good sense of sort of seeing things for what they were. So it was not an imperfect messenger by any means. It was someone who I definitely gravitated to. And I think back about that conversation a lot because I think then had it come from somebody else or had it come from a different uh, medium, I would have been... Okay, maybe, I don't know. But the fact that it came from something like that and it matched up with where the voices in my own head were going, it it, it meant a lot. And I think it's something that's important is you have to be mindful and aware of things. And so I I say that, I preach that now. And people are like, what does that mean? I go, we have a tendency in our society, in our culture, we're so connected into phones we're so connected into expectation and what is next that we're often not aware of things that are surrounding us and things that are desperately saying hey pay attention pay attention pay attention like why does this make you feel a certain way or why does this seemingly always happen and don't just white knuckle your way through it um and that was one of the things that the that the journey really gave back to me was this ability to be perceptive and I credit Boehner for having that uh, ability in such a high position. Yeah. I mean, to, to jump ahead for a minute, too, like looking at, yeah. at sort of the travel, like it's interesting hearing you describe that life on Capitol Hill and, you know, just the idea that that can wear out or that can become a routine in itself and just something that like a self-fulfilling prophecy. In some ways, the arc of your travel kind of ends up there, too, right? That like it starts as this like... I'm curious. I want to see the world. I want to get out there. And it kind of ends in this place of you questioning why are you continuing to do it? And are you doing this for, for social media clout or yeah. for, you know, for personal reasons? And mm-hmm. I'm curious just sort of how you ended up in that place, I guess. I think what you're describing is what the Buddhists teach, right? Which is embrace the suffering. Yeah. And when you hear that, everyone, I think, takes it too literally in our Western society, yeah. which is, oh, suffering is, is pain and anguish. Well, no, when the Buddhists say that, they are essentially saying that we as human beings go through motions every single day, and ultimately we have to be aware that they are happening and that there is good, there is bad, there's great, there's terrible uh, there's all these different emotions as you can process over the course of the day, and you have to be comfortable amongst all of them. Yeah. And once you realize that they're going to come down the 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 road, the pipeline, whatever analogy you want to use, uh, and you're aware of them, and you're aware of them in the moment, things become a lot more clear. Hmm. Now, it's very hard to get to that space because it, 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 you know we as human beings, our brain seeks comfort and security. Sure. So if you put yourself in uncomfortable situations routinely, uh, there's a there's an impetus to get out of it, get out of it, get out of it. But I think what I discovered and you mentioned is that you can shift up your environment and it's very important. And a shift in environment will bring some sense of clarity. Yeah. But it's most important is not what the external places are, it's what's happening internally. Yeah. And that's why I said to people, I said, I was very fortunate enough to have this opportunity to travel. Not everybody against that. I'm very aware of that. But one of the things you can do is just the simple exercise of disconnecting Mm. and how beneficial that is, whether it's to walk in the forest without your phone for an hour and a half and just process the thoughts of your head and be mindful. Okay, 
what happened today? I saw a lot of similarity between the Buddhists and the Jesuit examiner. You know, yeah. as a Catholic. So in the Jesuit examiner, you have to ask yourself these questions every day. You know, what what did you do good today? What did you do bad today? What did you notice today? Those types of things. And once I started to do that and live in that space, you become aware that even if you hit the sort of highest highs in life, there's still going to be something inside that may be off. Right. And there are some folks who, my grandfather was like this, who is just the happy, most optimistic guy in the entire world. And the way I explain it, I go, there are some of us who are blessed enough to fall asleep on an airplane. I, yeah. I cannot do it. I have to have <laughs> the perfect set of circumstances to fall asleep on an airplane. Yeah. It has to be dark. I have to be able to like lie back half the time. I can be exhausted. Right? It's very hard for me to sleep on an airplane. There's other people that the second that engine starts going, sure. they put their head back and they're out. They're out, totally. And there are some of us who are like that, but there's a lot of us who are not. And the ones of us who are not, I think, are aware that you, know, you, you may get to these highest highs, but there's this sort of sense of, all right, is there something else out there or, or what am I about? And once you get comfortable in knowing that your brain's going to go to that place and it's okay, you're overall curious, yeah. but you're not, uh, you're not afraid. And that's a, that's a very good place to be. It's not easy to get there though, but yeah. it's a good place to be. No, it takes work. Um, yeah. I, I want to, you, you talk about the Buddhist example there and I, what I was kind of struck by too in reading the book is it's a very Catholic book and I come from a very Catholic family. I've got uh, grandmothers on both sides that prayed the rosary like every day. You know, I'm, I'm from that. I drifted away from that personally. And part of that was just kind of the more I was exposed to other faiths and other ideas. I was like, how can, how can this be the one true thing? And I'm interested because you kind of went the other direction of, you know, you on this journey you pray in mosques, you pray with Buddhists, you go to the, the Holy Land in Israel, mm-hmm. and you still come out the other side. I think it seems maybe even more reinforced in your faith. Um, certainly, the, the Catholicism is always there throughout. And I'm curious just how those different world religions sort of informed your own personal faith. I've had the opportunity to be interviewed by priests during this book tour. That's always an interesting <laughs> moment, right? Yeah. And one of the things I say is that after going on this journey, I'm a big believer that we're all trying to get to the same place. We just take different roads. Yeah. And if you look at these religions, especially the you know, the three from Abraham, Christianity, yep. Judaism, and Islam, they're so intertwined. Right. I mean, the, the lessons about forgiveness, the lessons about spirituality and how it's sort of, you know, it's everywhere, but all at once and it's in everything. I mean, there's, there's certainly things that just cut across all. And for me, I sort of saw it as, okay, I have this opportunity to learn about all these different things and be like a sponge, sort of pick up the things that make the most sense to me, maybe discount some of the things that don't. But I never left thinking like Catholicism was the supreme one better than everybody else. I think it was just the one that fit me because I understood it the most. Yeah. But then I also saw that, that there's such a similarity in all of them, as I mentioned, that by understanding something like Buddhism, I was able to understand Catholicism better. Hmm. Uh, and it sounds weird. You're like, why Why is that? And I think it's one of those things where, again, and this is something you do in travel, is when you start to measure yourself up against the world, not just the environment that, you're, that you live in, it starts a deeper conversation. And it was interesting. It's like, 
I would go places all around the world, and the Catholic Church certainly has its problems, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But you would be in these far-flung villages, and there's you know, kids in this Catholic school who are learning lessons, and this is the only help they're getting. It's not coming from government. It's not coming from anywhere else. Yeah. And you have these folks, whether they're volunteers or priests or nuns, who are, who are literally living out the gospel as we know it, which was, you know, help your fellow man. So I would see that, and I'd be like, okay. When you get into the bureaucracy of most anything, things start to get uh, watered down or problematic or way too political. But when you actually see it on the front lines, Catholicism, it's a very beautiful thing. Yeah, that always just resonated with me. But it, you know, we don't. There's no exclusivity on Catholicism for help. I mean, I saw that all around the world, different faith groups and, and religions. But we're all trying to get to a place of peace. Yeah. I think we're all trying to get to a place of understanding, and ultimately trying to figure out. All right, how do I? best prepare myself for that next journey into the other side and that's where all the religions are going it's yeah. just you know, take uh you know, to take your way to get there yeah i mean speaking of the other side i'm curious um just how your travel sort of impacted your thoughts on the afterlife and and kind of in particular this theme of rainbows that comes out throughout the oh, book yeah. of you know you you see one after your dad's service after his funeral and you immediately kind of recognize okay that's him and then they keep reappearing for you in Iceland and all these different places that and and kind of at at critical moments, um, whether it was the anniversary of his death or times where you're thinking of him or something mm-hmm. like these rainbows were just there as symbols of comfort. And so, I'm, yeah, I'm just wondering about the afterlife and your your perceptions of it. I totally think that you're spot on uh, um, in terms of being aware of symbols yeah. and and signed. And I started to do that with the rainbows of course, the story begins that after his service in Washington, D.C., we went outside for a terrace for a reception. And the song that had played when everyone processed out of the memorial service was Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Yeah. Of course, there's the rainbow in Washington. So I became aware of those and would always sort of seek comfort in them. But what I noticed was traveling is that you, you want to be aware of those things for sure. And that you also can get into a deep meditative space in my own mind of communicating with our lost loved ones. And what I mean by that is not tarot card readings or things like that, but actually getting to a place of, okay, if they were here right now, what would they say? And really start to think about that and clear out the rest of your mind and focus in on that. And it's very, very powerful stuff. But going back to the signs for a moment, I've, um, in the course of, of, of this book, and even before talking about loss, I had a friend who lost her father and, she told me a funny story that I thought was so perfect is that for whatever reason, her dad had an affinity for chickens. Uh-huh. He like farm raised chickens okay. and like chickens brought him pleasure. And so she said, after he died, I began to notice all these chickens all the time. <laughs> and I said to her, I was like, what well, do you think that is? Do you think you just became more aware of it? Do you think it was like showing yourself? She's like, probably both, but it's something that it's, there can be something that is so silly. You know, it doesn't have to be as, prominent as a rainbow it could be a chicken yeah. and there's something there it's worthwhile to tap into as far as afterlife and things it was very interesting traveling to sort of see how different faiths and spirituality intersects with that one of the things i wrote about in the book which i i read at the time i wasn't in the headspace for it to be as affecting as it should but as i watched a cremation in nepal yeah. in a hindu temple and Again, like religious comparison from dust thou art to dust thou shall return. I mean, they're just happening literally in front of you, yeah. right? And I remember that distinctly now. I look back on it fondly, oddly enough, because 
the family of the woman who was being cremated was so they were so happy and what i mean by that like in in a in a spiritual peaceful sense and they were very inviting to everyone who was part of the service like everyone was sort of invited to join in the symbolism is all, all there right so here you go from the earthly body to the dust and it goes into the river and the spirituality of water renewal you know onward yeah. and you start to see things like that okay you know there's something here there's yeah. a reason why we go back yes to primordial times and there is these types of ceremonies right yeah so it, it brings comfort. Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to shift from from kind of the faith piece of your journey sure. to kind of another piece of the journey that that stood out to me, and that was kind of the American themes throughout. That like even as you're traveling the world, a large part of it, I think, was you digesting American culture. Whether that was visiting mm-hmm. the the prison where John McCain was a was a POW in Vietnam sure. to Hiroshima, or like the Door of No Return off of Senegal, where you know slaves. Uh, left Africa for the last time, headed for the new world. Like, why was it important to you to see American history so up close in these places? You're a very astute reader. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I was a history major in, in college. Yeah. And I've always had a fascination with American history. When I was trying to plan travel, I think it, at first there was a sort of a natural attraction. It's like, okay, one of the things that you do as a historian, I would say I was an amateur historian, probably still am. Yeah. You're trying to sort of answer questions and then bring your own analytical expertise to a situation. So for me, I sort of was thinking about, all right, what are things that is a lover of American history and someone who's fascinated by American history, I often struggle with. Yeah. Now, the first one, of course, is slavery, yeah. which is our mortal sin as a country, which we are still very much trying to work through. Sure. I don't know if we ever will do it. it. It might take a few more hundred years for that to happen. But when I was going to Africa, I knew that for just to feel right in my own head, that was the first thing that I had to to, to check out and to understand. Um, because if I didn't, I would just, there, there'd be a sense of guilt. There'd be a sense of just feeling off. So I went to Senegal and I went to the door of no return, which is this symbolic place of that voyage, uh, into shackles. And what was, what struck me more so than anything else was I had always associated water with a place of peace, a place of comfort. Yeah. And it's beautiful water there in Senegal where that door is, but you feel the heaviness and the ghosts and there's stories about people who drowned themselves instead of going on those ships. And suddenly for a moment, water is not replenishing to me. Water is, is heavy to yeah. weight. I had this wonderful guide who sort of talked through uh, everything that had occurred there in something that I mentioned in the book. And it's a story I like to tell is we go to the exhibit they have and he points at a, a picture it's of a French slave trader. And the guy had a beard and similar eyes to mine. Yeah. And he says, oh, it's you, just jokingly. Right. And my initial reaction is, no, 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 no. My family of the Americas, we were German, Irish, Italian immigrants. We came after the Civil War. And uh, even the ones who were there before the Civil War who fought and fought on the Union side and the ones who we were there, they uh, they didn't like slavery because it cut into their wages. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So my, my and 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 I catch myself right after I say that I go, oh my god. Yeah. My first reaction is defensive and an economic one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's sort of telling of where I think we still very much are as a country that even though I'm on the right side of the history, like my ancestry traces back to the Union side of the, of the battle, or right after coming, right, yeah. right after the Civil War, a lot of the family came. There's still this 
no, not me. Yeah. And I think it's now it's way more intertwined than 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 we think. So that was a very meaningful moment for me, and and I was fortunate to have somebody to talk it through and, and understand. And 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 you just see that it's how barbaric it was and how terrible it was from its infancy onward. And I think in other places like Vietnam. Now, that was something my parents used to talk about all the time because it defined so much of their generation. Sure. So many conversations at the dinner table were, what was the Vietnam era? And you go to Vietnam, and I think you go with all these expectations. It's going to be, it's like Apocalypse Now, right. you know, one of those yeah, movies. Yeah. And you go there and you go, my gosh, these are just such incredibly sweet, nice people. And this is such a beautiful country. And why was this this sort of ground zero for this capitalism versus communism war. And by the way, this country is pretty much capitalistic now because all these brands are made there. Right. <laughs> and so what did we know? Pete, this, we didn't have to die at this level. This should have caused all this pain and anguish for so many people. And the same thing happened to me in Hiroshima is that you go there and you're like, man, I understand why that bomb was dropped. I get the arguments for it. But when you see it in, in reality and you see the damage that it caused and you see the, the hole it's left literally in yeah. that community to this day, it, you start to question things. And I love America. I'm a proud American to this day. But I do think we are better for doing some introspection and thinking about things that happened over history and certainly not repeating them, but also just not putting everything in black and white. Yeah. And it's a lot more nuanced. It's a way, way, way more nuanced. It is. And I, I guess this is kind of where all of the different parts of your identity kind of intersect, perhaps, is because like there's there's the history classroom where that subtlety can be discussed or, or can be a topic of conversation. But there's the history that's being made in real time by politicians sure. or, you know, just the narrative that's kind of spread by by the news media or, or the politicians speaking to the media, whatever it is like. Did that change your perception sort of in thinking of, okay, what was happening in the Vietnam era? What was happening in World War II? How were politicians justifying this? How was the media covering it? Did that change your thoughts about sort of the work you had done prior? It's a good question. Um, I think it left me with the belief that if I were to ever go back into journalism uh, in a serious level like that, that you really have to be mindful of the nuance. Yeah. I look back at some of the war reporting that happened in the 2000s and after the fact, I think a lot of it was good, but I think a lot of it, especially when it came to the issues of sectarian violence, there wasn't enough from, in my opinion, the mainstream perspective about really trying to explain on the ground how there's these sort of tribal divisions, yeah. what they mean, right? because it's so complicated, right? It's like, it, you very much want to say, all right, here, no, America is here. We're on the side of these people who want a, a free way to live. And that's what we're doing. When in actuality, you know, America is dropping into either a civil conflict or a tribal conflict that goes years before where there might be loose alliances between two factions, but then they're warring. I mean, it's messy. Right. And I think that's something where when it comes to any type of foreign intervention, at least for me, it changed my perspective and that you really have to know what the sides are and, and explain them very thoroughly and what an objective is. Right. Because nothing, it doesn't matter, especially now in the information age we live in, it doesn't matter what superpowers you have. If you don't know who the sides are and what's actually happening on the ground, it's not going to go very far. Right. And of course, the irony of all this my mother, who's a Peace Corps volunteer in the 60s in Colombia, 
and who's always been a big proponent of you know build schools don't drop bombs you right. know, books or books not bombs etc has always sort of preached this idea is that you 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 get a lot more by building things than tearing them down yeah and I walked away very much agreeing with that but it's interesting kind of the the flip side of all that is like talking about nuance and things I mean just looking at yourself as a as a reporter in your 20s you know very green mm-hmm. and being on Capitol Hill like you don't always have the time. We talked about the 110 miles an hour or whatever. Like sure. you don't have the time to do that research. There's an editor calling you saying, we've got to get on the air in 10 minutes. Like for people that are in media spaces now, like how do you, how do you find that grounding? How do you find that perspective when you're always racing against the clock and just grabbing those sound bites? I love that question. I think it's one of the most important things um, we could, it's one of the most important things that we are as a country are going through right now. And it's something that should be discussed way more. Yeah. And people like to hate on the media, but the amount of incoming the media has to deal with every single day. Sure. The job does not lend itself many times through have a real a thorough examination of facts. Um, one of the things that I used to do on Capitol Hill, and I don't even know to do this anymore, but I would just be like, look, I'm sorry. I cannot go on TV right now because I actually have to report. Yeah. I know that might be a foreign concept, but you cannot report when you're, when you're chained to a television camera. Like, I have to be able to go in these scrums. I have to be able to go in these offices. I have to do some real reporting. I can't just be all be done on a, a phone. Right. And, and you can get a lot, but you can't get it all. And they, oh, yes, but you're sort of, you know, you're on TV. I said, I know, but this is what we do. And I encourage, uh, especially young people who want to get in the business, I said, try to take assignments that give you time. Yeah. And what I mean by that is whether it be long form or an investigative piece that there's some time given to it. Because if you have that time, you can learn some real important skills about fact-finding, about interviewing. But that's the irony, right? We've never had a more interconnected society, but the technology is so demanding. There's so much instant gratification. It robs us of the ability to actually do real thorough reporting. Right. My mom has a great story. When she used to do profile pieces about different celebrities back in the, the 70s, she was a, a, a culture writer for Newsweek magazine. And she used to get two to three weeks with her subjects wow. and be surrounding them for hours at a time. And that was considered the norm. Right. You know, some of those uh, the p- pieces in magazines written about politicians and whatnot, I mean, there would be long stretches of time where you got to understand them and whatnot. And now, I mean, you might get lucky. You got get 10 minutes with Taylor Swift, right? right? It's, yeah. <laughs> if you're lucky. And that's considered like real access. Yeah. And I think the same thing can be said about serious issues, especially like on Capitol Hill. The amount of time you have, um, budgets are a good example. So, you know, the appropriations process. To thoroughly report on an appropriations process, you would need about, uh, I would argue, like 30 people and yeah. you would. It, organization and you would have to go through all of it. Line it's hundreds line. and hundreds of pages, right? It's hundreds it's... and thousands of pages. And you know, they don't even know what they're voting on at the time. Yeah. And that's sort of something I wish more people were aware of. It's not our fault. Uh, well, I wish we had all the resources in the world. You could be up 24 straight hours and still not get all at it. Yeah. And I, I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, maybe it'll, it'll be AI now. Who the hell knows? But <laughs> it's, it's, we'll see. I mean, the flip of that, of course, is like I see a tweet that's a sentence or two long and I say, okay, 
I get it. And then, or, or I click on the link and it's a, it's a 28 page New Yorker article. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, I know I should, but I don't have the time for it right now. You know, it's, it, as a consumer too, we're guilty. Well, that's what's so interesting too, is that the consumer seems to want that instant or they'll give you, or they'll do the deep dive, but it's just the deep dive on their own time. Right. right. And maybe if there's somewhere where some of this it does work out, I shouldn't be all doom and gloom as I think the streaming services have done a good job in the sense that there are sort of larger scale issues that are more thoroughly investigative and people do understand them on their own time. And then of course, PBS Frontline is a hell of a job Sure, and they dedicate the time and resources, but you see them I and there's, there's only a few of those a year. Yeah, of course. Hard to do. of course. And they're yeah. expensive and they take and they're resources. Expensive. And, yeah. 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 Um, kind of wrapping it all up. And uh, I don't mean for this to be a, a tough question. I hope it's not, but um, this journey started as a as a way for you to kind of find your purpose and you know obviously you you wrote the book from it but like have you have you found that bigger purpose in all of this traveling for three years and and writing most importantly i've gotten to a place of peace about losing my father yeah so that is something that i'm so thankful for and the journey was worth everything for that uh because i'm not carrying that weight and to not have that weight is, uh, it's liberating. Yeah. Um, but it's also just in, in my general disposition is, is, is much better about life and, and everything. I think as far as me, I still say I'm a work in progress. I mean, I don't have this aha moment of what exactly it is I want to do, but I know that the things I've learned along the way I can put to good use. I like storytelling. I want to stay in this space in some capacity, whether it's writing another book, whether it's reporting in a documentary fashion. Um, I, I do think where I'm of value is with analytical perspective to take the sort of experiences I've had and apply them to things coming down the pipeline. And it's also trying to just have a sort of general understanding. And the goal of the book was, I hope folks would read it and feel a little less lost and, and maybe apply that to storytelling in a, in a way. Cause I think there's just so much that it's missed. And part of it is because of what we talked about that emphasis on speed. Yeah. Um, and then part of it is that it just doesn't fit into a given moment in, in culture or time. And, and, and we should work harder to make it so. All right. Luke Russert there. That was, uh, it was heavy. It was an intense conversation. It's an intense book. And uh, like I said at the beginning, he's lived an intense life. Look for me there, grieving my father, finding myself. Go check it out wherever you get your books. It's a great read. It's a good summer read. It's a good road trip read or airplane read. Or, you know, if you're out seeing the world this week or this month or this summer, he deals with a lot of themes that I think we're all thinking about. So, yeah. Get the book. It's a good read. If you've enjoyed this conversation, make sure that you are subscribed to Willoughby Hills. Not only do I have this podcast, but I also have a newsletter that comes out twice a week, deals with everything from urbanism to how our relationship to work is changing, how we grow our food, consumerism, all those things. It's it's always a bit of a grab bag. It's fun. Get on the list. You'll get the newsletter twice a week. You'll get new podcast episodes when they come out. Go to heathrasella.com slash newsletter to sign up there. Got some great newsletters coming up. Got some great podcasts coming up. Really, really excited about it. And I am happy that you join me here today. I'm at Heathrasella on Twitter and Instagram. Give me a follow. Let's connect over there. Let me know what you liked, what you didn't like. And thanks for listening. I hope you have a restful fourth. And uh, 
Enjoy your July. Stay safe. <laughs>